Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. Turn with me this morning. We're going to start in three different places this morning in Genesis chapter 50, Genesis 50 in verse 19, in Acts chapter 8 in the New Testament, Acts chapter 8 verse 1, and in Romans chapter 8 verse 28. So Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 50, Acts chapter 8, and Romans uh, also chapter 8, verse 28. Here we go from from the book of Genesis. We're uh, reading in the New Living Translation today. It says, but Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. I just want to to hit that verse one more time. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. Praise God for divine intentions. Amen. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he completely agreed with the killing of Stephen. Now look at this. This is what I wanted you to see especially. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Church wasn't together anymore. Now the church was scattered. And look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for, those, for, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We know this. We don't just believe it. We don't think it. We, we don't hope it's true. We know God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, would you inhabit the praises of your people this morning? Would you be with us as we dive into your word, Holy Spirit? I just pray that that you would manifest yourself through the word of Jesus. I pray, God, that, that you would help us to experience your power and your presence right where we are today as if we were all together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to our sixth week. Can you believe it's been six weeks that we've been online only? It only feels like six years, right? It, it, it's become our new temporary normal. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of investigation over this virus and where it came from. Um, and I'm sure that that investigation, speculation, um, I'm sure all that's going to continue until we're all sick of hearing about it. Um, regardless of the earthly cause of this crisis, whether it was accidental or an intentional act of terrorism or somewhere in between, if there is an in-between, there is also a spiritual element to this virus. 
There's a spiritual element. There always is. Nothing happens on earth that doesn't first happen at the spiritual level, in the spiritual realm. And though the, uh, the enemy of our souls, the devil, knows the Word of God backwards and forwards, or maybe come to think of it, he knows it backwards better than he knows it forwards. The, the enemy knows the Word of God. I believe, no matter what the cause of this virus is, I believe that he has rejoiced in seeing church doors closed and fellowships shuttered. I think he was ecstatic that we could no longer visit the sick and the grieving, that we could no longer offer a hug of greeting or a, a, a hug of compassion. I think he was thrilled that we've been separated from one another for an extended period of time. I think the enemy has used this situation to do what the enemy has always done, and that's attack the church and the work of God. But what surprises me about this is that it goes against the clear evidence of history and the Word of God. And we just read it. Every act of malice, every act of persecution, every act of violence that's been perpetrated against the church, every negative circumstance, every dark and dire day that the church has ever endured has advanced the kingdom of God. It's just a fact. It's been turned around to be a blessing. It has to be. Why? Because the word demands that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose and who love him. The word declares that what the enemy intended for evil, God intended for good. The word testifies through the test of the, through the, through the, that though the enemy tried to stamp out Christianity when the church was just a small spark in Jerusalem, that all it served to do was to scatter the fires of revival throughout the known world. And that pattern has been repeated over and over again throughout the 2000 year history of the church. That's what's so surprising to me about the enemy. It's almost like he can't help himself. But listen to me this morning. Don't sound the death knell of the church just yet. Don't write the obituary of Christianity yet. Don't plan the memorial when there's still life in the movement and purpose in the mission. The enemy hasn't killed the church. He has awakened a sleeping giant. What he meant for evil, God meant for good. What he thought would silence us has caused us to cry out to God and to this world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he thought would separate us has united us. What has long grieved and plagued the American church has almost instantly fallen away. And I truly believe that we are on the precipice of the greatest period of Christianity that we've seen since the Azusa Street outpouring. If we will press into God, if we will take our relationship with Jesus personally, if we'll allow ourselves to be filled with the presence and the purpose and the power and the person of the Holy Spirit every day, then we will see the greatest move of God that any of us has ever witnessed. And listen, we'll not only see it, we'll be a part of it. The paradox of the pandemic is that this thing hasn't killed the church, it cured the church. It wasn't a dose of cyanide, it's been a shot of adrenaline. 
So today, I want us to talk about three ways that this pandemic has fixed some of the problems of the church so that we can make sure they stay fixed as we move forward into our new reset of whatever normal is going to look like. The para- so a paradox is an unexpected and opposite result than what was expected or even what was intended. So today's message is called the paradox of the pandemic. The paradox of the pandemic. What, were the, what have been the unintended consequences of this pandemic? And here's the first one. It's restored presence to our peace. It's restored presence to our peace. You see, I'm afraid that too many people in the American church over the last few years, maybe through the last few generations, have found a peace that is positional, that it was situational, it was circumstantial, that we could walk in peace as long as everything was going our way. As long as neither the bank nor the cupboard nor the goodwill in our relationships were empty, then we could find peace. But listen to me, that's a fragile peace. That's a fragile peace. How many times in your life is everything going good on all fronts all at the same time? Like how many times in your life is there nothing to be concerned about? In my experience, very few. And if it, if it ever does happen, that's a great hour, but like after an hour, something starts to fall apart. That's just the way it is, right? Which means that there's a whole bunch of believers walking around this continent without peace. You can never get spiritual peace from carnal means. You can never get lasting peace from temporal means. There has to be something more. There has to be something higher, something more powerful, something more penetrating than the kind of peace that we've been experiencing. Let me show you some examples. Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, uh, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others, other soldiers stood guard at the prison gate. Can I just tell you, I'm having a hard time sleeping because my dog sleeps beside me. He drives me nuts. Or she does. I just changed genders on my dog. How about that? The dog drives me nuts. Right up against me. Peter is asleep, fastened by chains to two soldiers. He's asleep. And look at this. It gets, it, you'll see how well he was sleeping. Suddenly, there's a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. So he woke up when the light came on, right? No. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. I, I want the kind of peace that allows a man who's on death row to sleep so soundly that he doesn't notice the blindingly bright light of the arrival of an angel in his cell. I mean, the angel had to smack him to wake him up on the night before his trial and probable execution. That's some serious peace right there. That's not situational peace. That's some serious, different kind of peace. Let me show you some more examples. Daniel chapter 3 Verses 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, the king, 
We don't need to defend ourselves before you. Another translation says we don't need to be careful in what we're saying to you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. Again, these three guys are standing before the king who's already announced his intention to kill them if they don't worship his God. And they stand in faith and what seems to me to be an abundance of peace. They don't seem to be the least bit concerned about the outcome. They are at peace either way it turns out. Here's one more. First and second Kings chapter six. One night, the king of Aram, that's, that's an enemy of Israel, um, sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, um, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. And his servant freaked out and said, Sir, what are we going to do now? His servant cried to the prophet Elisha. Elisha said, Don't be afraid. Because there's more on our side than on their side. Surrounded by an enemy army and the man says, don't be afraid. Now, where does that kind of peace come from? I want that kind of peace. I want you to have that kind of peace. I want the church to have that kind of peace. That's, that, that's an important question. Where does that come from? Because this pandemic has ripped away all sources of peace that might have, we might have based our earthly peace upon. Everything that has brought us peace, everything that we've depended on is now either in crisis or has collapsed. And listen, it's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift because it has revealed the peace that they has revealed to us that peace is and has always been about presence, presence. Let me show it to you this way, or let me say it to you this way. Peace is not a place you go. Peace is a person you know. Peace isn't a place you go. It's a person you know, and that person is Jesus. It's Jesus. Isaiah 7 described him 700 years before he ever darkened the, the face of the earth. Isaiah said he's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be the prince of peace. Two different ways to describe the one person who can offer true and lasting peace. I want you to look at what Jesus said about it himself. John chapter 14, the last night that Jesus was on this earth, Look at what he said. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. In other words, I'm, I'm going to bring you to myself. If this were not so, would I have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. And I want you to look at the end of that chapter, chapter 14, verse 27, part of the same conversation. He says, I'm leaving you with a gift. What gift, Jesus? Peace of mind and heart. Peace. He's giving us a gift of peace. And he says, listen, the, the peace that I give is a gift the world can't give. You can't find it anywhere else. 
So don't worry about the fact that everything else has crumbled and that you can't find peace in all those places you found it before. You can't find this kind of peace there anyway. Jesus says, so don't be troubled and don't be afraid. Remember what I told you. I am going away, but I will come back to you again. And if you really love me, you'd be happy that I'm going to the Father who's greater than I am. Jesus said, don't be troubled. In other words, he says, walk in peace. Isn't that what that means? Don't be afraid, don't be troubled, don't be concerned, don't be worried. Walk in peace. Why? What justification did Jesus give for the gift of peace that he was offering? He said, because where I am, that's where you're going to be. It's peace through presence. Then at the end of the chapter, he says it again. I'm leaving you the gift of peace that the world can't give you. What's it based on? It's based on the fact that I'm leaving, but I'm coming to be with you again. And then I'm going to give you, he says in the next chapter, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will not just be with you like I'm with you, but he's going to be in you so that you never have to be without me again. It's a permanent peace through his permanent presence. Permanent peace through his permanent presence. You see what I'm saying? That the enemy intended this pandemic to strip away our peace and to keep us all tied up in knots. But the paradox of the pandemic is that what it's really done is strip away all those other forms of false peace and reveal that true peace only comes from the presence of God. Peter went to sleep in that jail knowing that whether he lived or died, he was going to be in the presence of Jesus. Elisha didn't know how it was all going to turn out surrounded by an enemy army, but his peace came from the fact that God was all around them. The three Hebrew boys didn't know whether they would live or die, but the fact that the fourth man showed up in the fire was all they needed to know to have faith and peace. Listen, I know these are scary times. I know things are uncertain, things are unsettled, but true peace, the peace that Jesus gives, he, he says this, I may be standing in, in the biggest storm of my life. This is what the peace of Jesus allows you to say. I may be standing in the biggest storm of my life. I may not know how it's going to turn out, but I know that God is standing with me. And as long as he is present, I am at peace. This pandemic has restored presence to our peace. The presence of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is all we need. And the peace we learn here, we have to take with us when things return to whatever normal is going to look like. Because this peace is founded on a rock that cannot be moved by circumstance no matter what the future holds. So this pandemic has restored presence to our peace. Here's the second paradox of the pandemic. It's restored power to our prayers. It's restored power to our prayers. Throughout the New Testament, you find the passionate pastoral prayers of the Apostle Paul. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to find a person more committed to the discipline of prayer than Paul was. 
You say, John, that's a bold statement. Does the, the scripture back that up? Well, I think it does. Look at Acts chapter 16. I just want to show you one vignette, one anecdote from the life of Paul to prove what I'm saying. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. The city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten. Then they were thrown into prison. The jailer ordered to, was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So he put them into the inner dungeon, clamped their feet in the stocks. And around midnight, Paul and Silas sent for their attorney so they could file a grievance against the city. Right? No. Paul and Silas began to complain and whine and mourn about their current situation. Right? No. Paul and Silas started raking their metal cup against the bars of the jail, asking to be released. Right? No. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Anybody who's been attacked by an angry mob, beaten with wooden rods, thrown in the filth and the chill of the inner dungeon, had their feet put into metal stocks, and the first time in hours that they get a break from the violence that's being committed against them, they decide to pray? That's a person who understands something about prayer that the American church, by and large, just hasn't captured yet. And do you know where he learned to value prayer like that? Paul learned the power of prayer in jail. He was locked up with nowhere to go, no one else to talk to. Hang on just a second. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the life that we're living right now. This pandemic has us staying at home. Feels like we're locked up with nowhere to go. He's got us staying at home way more than ever. And the devil thought he had shut us down, but God is using the fact that every other option has been taken away to teach us the power of prayer. We don't understand this virus. There's no apparent medical treatment for it right now. We can't tell who hasn't and who doesn't. We can't, we can't get to people to check on them, to help them. We can't do anything for them anyway. We are out of all our other options. So what do we have left? Prayer. Prayer. And we're finding out that there's more power in prayer than we realized. More power in prayer than we gave God credit for. And it's not just a discipline. Prayer isn't just a discipline. It's a conversation with a loving, living God. Now this week, it's been all over the headlines that Governor Cuomo of New York is baffled that the death toll of the virus has not even come close to what he was projecting just a couple of weeks ago. He can't understand it. Seems like an intelligent man, but he can't understand it. He thinks the power is from our staying sheltered in place. As a matter of fact, he stated flat out, God had nothing to do with this. Now, is there a benefit to staying sheltered in place and staying away from each other? I'm sure there is, but not on the scale that they're seeing their benefit. The, the staying at home has been a wake-up call for the believers of this nation. We kept the believers at home, and it's not just that they're not spreading the virus. It's that suddenly and finally we are staying at home, and we are finding out what the Word has been trying to teach us all along, that there is power in prayer. 
You see, a lot of people have had a habit of prayer or a ritual of prayer or a practice of prayer, but are being forced to stop doing all these other things has restored the power to our prayers. See, we literally can't do anything else. But it turns out that what's been needed is what's been needed all along. We should have been praying anyway. There is power in the Word of God. Power when you agree with the Word. Power in the name of Jesus. Power in the person of Jesus. That's what we're accessing through prayer. Listen, it's not a spell. You see, you can't say, Pastor, can you write us a write down a prayer that we can pray? Stop all that. It's not a spell. There's no magic words. This is not witchcraft. It's not spiritual manipulation. There's no magic prayer. This is is about people making honest requests humbly before an almighty God who desperately wants to talk to his children, desperately wants to move on their behalf, desperately wants to see his kingdom come and his will be done on this earth. That's what's changing this pandemic, Governor Cuomo. That's what's changing this pandemic. That's what's saving lives. It's people are getting on their knees. People are getting on their faces before God with no plan B. They're calling out to him because in this time, it's God or it's nothing. And it's the kind of dependence upon God that's always caused faith to arise in his people and purify their prayers so that God's power can be revealed. And as we see the end of this pandemic and begin to reestablish the norms of our lives, may we never lose what we've gained. The enemy thought he'd use panic to drive people away from God. But the paradox of the pandemic is that it's driven people to a newfound appreciation for the power of prayer. And here's the last unexpected, unintended consequence of this pandemic. It's restored people to our priorities. It's restored people to our priorities. If you ask people a few months ago, what they were most looking forward to in their lives in the next couple of months, what do you think it would have been? What would have been on your list? Think about that. Can you? It's getting hard to remember before the pandemic, but think about that. What, would have, what were people looking forward to in February? It was this, this event or that thing, right? It was, I'm going to buy this thing or I'm going to sell that thing and get a little bit more money so I can go buy this thing instead. And, nobody's talking about any of that stuff anymore. That's not what's on people's mind. And here's why. It turns out you can still buy party food and you can buy party favors, but you can't have a party without people. You can still deliver content. You can accomplish academic uh, standards and achievements, but you can't have school without people. You, you You can still have the rituals of church, You can have the routines of church. You can even drive up on the property of the church. But we are discovering that the church is not in the rituals or the routines. It's not the property. It's not the pews. It's the people. The church is the people. Listen, the food that Jessica and Chad prepared for us in the cafe every Sunday is good. But I miss the people. 
The sound is better. The feel is better when we're all together in the sanctuary. But I've been here in the sanctuary for six weeks in this empty room. And let me tell you, I miss the people. The difference is the people. It's not the place. It's not the property. It's not the chairs. It's not the walls. It's not the pulpit. It's the people. We've gotten so busy in our lives and in our routines and in our rituals before this all started, our calendars were slapped full of stuff that we had to do. And they were so full that we forgot about the people, even the people in our own homes. So many people that I've seen or heard in the last few weeks have talked about they're rediscovering their love for each other. They're rediscovering their relationships with each other. They're getting this newfound appreciation for their kids. They've forgotten how cool each other are because we've buried ourselves in activities that we've claimed. We swore these activities were so we could have experiences together, but what they really did was serve to isolate and separate us. We have to commit to keeping some margin in our lives and in our schedules so that we can maintain the connections with each other that we've made. We have to remember what it was like to try to do life without people. We can't forget that the church is people. So when we get back together, I I know you've already been thinking about this. I've already been thinking about this. We may have to have a pre-service hugging service where we just get together and hug, right? That sounds really creepy when you say it out loud, but you know you want to be there too, right? It's a weird place we're in now. We, We miss the people. See, the enemy thought he was going to use the pandemic to get us out of the habit of going to church, to separate us and discourage us by keeping us apart. But listen, I see the opposite happening. I see people who can't wait to get back together. I see people grieving the loss of connection who can't wait to reestablish it. I think it'll take most of a generation before we start to forget what it was like not to have each other. I think we're connecting better now than when we saw each other every week. Why? Because God has used this thing to bring people back to our priorities. And it's also shed light on the fact that there's a whole world of people who've never been inside our church. I am so excited every Sunday that I get the opportunity, though I miss a whole lot of stuff, especially you, I am so excited that, that we get to stand on this platform every Sunday and, and talk to people that we've never met, that we've never seen, who've never even heard of Bremen, Georgia, right? You don't even know where Harrelson County is, and you don't even have to. Like, who cares? There's nowhere, <laughs> you can't come here anyway, right? doesn't matter anymore. We're getting a chance to connect with people that we've never met. And, it's, and, and it, 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 for people who have eyes to see, this, this pandemic is highlighting for us that we, can't, we, we can just stop thinking about the way it's always been 
because there might be a better way, a different way, an additional way to evangelize and disciple people that's more effective than we ever dreamed of. Like the chance that we get to stand here and talk to you wherever you are in the world, that's a tool that the Apostle Paul would have given his life for. So we've got to make sure that we continue to do everything we can. When, it's, when it's, we get a chance to come back together, we still have to do everything we can to reach people wherever they are, whether they ever come to this house or not. It comes back to the fact that it is and has always been about people. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not that God so loved the planet. It's not that God so loved the geography or the geology of the earth. It's that God loved the people that he sent his son. What are the greatest commandments? Love God and love people. What broke the heart of Jesus on Palm Sunday as he topped the, the Mount of Olives and looked out over Jerusalem? It was the people. What held Jesus to the cross? It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the Roman government. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. What held Jesus to the cross was his love for people. For people. So listen, don't buy into the myth of the culture war. Don't buy into this us versus them mentality. It's not the good people versus the bad people. It's not the Christian people versus the unchristian people. We only have one enemy. And Ephesians 6 said it's not flesh and blood. The only enemy we have is the devil. And every other human being is either a Christian or a potential Christian. They are the mission. The people are the mission. And this world is the mission field. We had, and the American church had lost sight of that for far too long. We've been lost in our sanctuaries and in our holy huddles. This pandemic has stripped away all of that mess and helped us to see a vital spiritual truth. That it's not the buildings, it's not the projects, it's not the programs. Our priority is people, period. And I fully intend to make the devil sorry that he had plans for this pandemic. Because the paradox of the pandemic is that what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. That God is working all of this for our good that what was supposed to sink us is going to be our salvation. So let's commit to keeping the, the presence in our peace, the power in our prayers, and the people in our priorities. That's the paradox of this pandemic. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. 
At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.